1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and these words very much also, I believe, are a source of great comfort as uh, we face death, as we face the death of loved ones. Um, this is one of the key passages that would be read at a funeral service um, or read to someone who is, who is nearing death. Of course, we all need to be reminded of what awaits us in the future and the hope that we have in Christ. So I want to read now from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 uh, through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There is a very large contrast between how the unbeliever and the Christian respond to death. And often the difference has to do with differing beliefs about what happens to a person at death. When a brother or sister in Christ dies, the Christian sorrows, but the Christian still has hope, still has hope for that person But for the world, the death of a loved one brings sorrow without hope. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he was writing to Christians who had grown up immersed in Greek culture and beliefs. After all, Thessalonica was a Greek city. And what the Greeks as a whole taught was that there is essentially nothing to look forward to after death. Many Greeks believed in total extinction, that when you died, you were gone. Body, soul, every aspect of you, you are gone at death. They referred to death as sleep from which there is no awakening. One Greek philosopher, Catullus, said that death is, quote, one unending night to be slept through, end quote. Theocritus is quoted as saying, hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope, end quote. Some Greeks taught that the soul had a chance of survival But even these beliefs brought hardly any comfort. For example, some Greeks said that at death the soul enters into Hades, this sunless place where the dead bemoan their existence. Sometime later, their beliefs were modified to include a place something like heaven, but it was only for a few favorites of the gods. Some groups promised a happy afterlife, but it was only for those who belonged to their membership and did not this, the, this promise of a happy afterlife did not belong to the average person. Some thought that the soul survived death only for a little while until it was absorbed into God. So while a few Greeks believed the soul would go on after death, even these beliefs offered little comfort. Meanwhile, the Greeks as a whole believed that for the body there was no hope whatsoever. At death the body was gone. From the 2nd century A.D., we have the record of a letter that conveys the typical attitude of that day. The letter is written by a woman by the name of Irene to a family in mourning. 
In this letter, she says she is sorry about their loss and that she weeps over their loss, just as she has recently wept over the loss of her own loved one. And she concludes her letter with these words of utter hopelessness. Now, she speaks of comfort, but these are really words of hopelessness. She says, quote, but nevertheless, against such things one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. Farewell, end quote. Today, the beliefs held by the world about what happens to the body are a whole, as a whole not a lot different from those of the Greeks. Many of the people in our society believe that when you die, you are gone, that your death is not any different than the death of an animal. For those who hold to Far Eastern and New Age religions, it said that man's soul will just be absorbed into deity. For others, there is belief in heaven, but there is uncertainty about whether or not they are good enough to get there. As far as I know, unbelievers who believe in heaven talk really only about the soul going there. They share the beliefs of the Greek that there is no hope for the body. And as a result, there is great hopelessness that plagues unbelievers when a loved one dies. They have no real hope on which to hold. They have no real assurance. They have no real confidence that their loved one is in a better place. They've either resigned themselves to believing that death is the end, or else they cross their fingers, they count their lucky stars, that things are perhaps okay on the other side. But no matter how you describe it, death is for the unbeliever a terrifying monster. Paul writes to the Thessalonians because there were some in the church who were not understanding death correctly. They were apparently, we don't, we're not told this directly, but we believe that they were being influenced by these old ways, these Greek ways of thinking. Paul begins in verse 13 with the words, but we want you, uh, do not want you to be uninformed, or perhaps your translation says ignorant. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers. Ignorance of the truth is always bad for the believer. And in Thessalonica, their ignorance of biblical doctrine, their, their lack of being informed about true biblical doctrine was taking away the comfort that they should have been enjoying in Christ. For they had apparently wrong ideas about their believing loved ones who had recently died. <clears throat> we don't know the details of what happened, but apparently a fair number of people in the church had lost loved ones there uh, since Paul had left Thessalonica, uh, these deaths may have been a result of the persecutions that that church faced. And what was happening was that the living believers were for some reason thinking that their loved ones who had died before Christ returned were going to miss out to some degree on the glories of his return. It's hard to determine exactly what these believers were thinking concerning their loved ones Paul's instruction here gives only hints about what they believed and where they were going wrong. Um, perhaps they, they thought that their loved ones were gone, that they were completely lost because they had died before Jesus returned. That's a possibility, but Paul's teaching here seems to be confronting a different concern. Paul's teaching indicates that the Thessalonians' concern was not that the deceased were completely lost, but that they were going to receive a lesser degree of glory than those who would be alive at the Lord's coming. So what was the disadvantage that they thought the deceased might have? Well, again, Scripture doesn't give us the details, but it does give hints. Perhaps their concern was about the bodies of their loved ones. 
In other words, the Thessalonians may have given up all hope for the future glory of the bodies of those deceased. They figured that only those who were alive at Christ's coming would be saved in both body and soul. And that would certainly be a belief that they could easily fall into because of their pagan background, which denied any kind of afterlife for the body. But perhaps the concern lay in another direction. Would the departed saints be there at all to witness and experience the glory of Christ's return? Or would they remain behind in heaven? Or would, there, uh, would they be there at the Lord's return, but only as lesser saints who would end up following the others and meeting the Lord in the air? The point of Paul's instruction is to do away with the notion that those who die before Christ's return will have a lesser salvation. His point is that there is no partiality toward believers in terms of what they experience in salvation. Those who are alive at Christ's coming will have no advantage over those who have, as Paul describes it here, fallen asleep. This evening, you and I are confronted by a word of God that instructs us on a number of topics it, it, it tells us about those who have died as believers and why they have hope, um, why we have hope in, in death as believers. The heart of this hope is our resurrection. Because this hope is related to Christ's return, this passage also tells us some important truths about Christ's return. But most, if not all of us here, um, have lost loved ones. Um, we've lost loved ones who, as far as we know, died as believers And the Lord doesn't want us to sorrow as others who have no hope. He doesn't want your response to death to be like that of the world. And it's certainly normal, it's expected that we grieve when a loved one dies. But when a believer dies, our grief must not be a grief of hopelessness. To this end, what the Thessalonians needed and what we need is doctrine. We need biblical truth. And uh, these doctrines, when understood and believed will be of great comfort. And I've summarized the doctrine of this text under three points, which are as follows. First of all, our fellow believers who have died are only asleep. That's an important truth that we recognize. Our fellow believers who have died are only asleep. Second, departed saints will not be left out of the resurrection and the glories of Christ's return. And third, one day we will be reunited with our deceased brothers and sisters in Christ so that together we will enjoy the glories of Christ. So we begin with the first of these doctrines. First, our fellow believers who have died are only asleep. In verses 13 through 15, we find in each verse Paul referring to believers who have died as being asleep. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive or left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Three times, right, reference here to believers as those who have fallen asleep. Explaining why scripture, why the Holy Spirit refers to the dead in Christ as being asleep Explaining that, it's helpful to consider what this expression, first of all, doesn't mean. Um, There are some Bible teachers today who are promoting the idea of soul sleep. They base their beliefs on the passages in Scripture where dead believers are said to be asleep. For instance, after Lazarus had died, Jesus told his disciples, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. 
Such texts, along with the verses before us this evening, are interpreted by some to mean that when believers die, they enter into a state very similar to sleep. And I am certain that you know what it is to experience sleep. Sleep is this state of rest where you are inactive, you are unconscious, and during the time you are resting, you are unaware of what is going on around you. You have no idea of how much time is passing, and the normal pattern, of course, is that eventually you wake up. And so we are told by some false teachers today that for the believer who dies, he enters into a state of unconsciousness. The teaching of soul sleep says that you will remain in that state of unconsciousness until Christ returns. It may be only a short time, or it may be hundreds, it may be even thousands of years. But of course, for those who are asleep, time is irrelevant. Eventually, the soul sleep will end when Christ returns and raises the body and soul from the grave. Notice I said the soul, even, from the grave. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time this evening refuting the false teaching of soul sleep, but I would point, out to the, point you to the conversation that Jesus had with the thief on the cross in which Jesus told that thief, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.8 says that he prefers to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. The scripture is clear that at death, our soul remains conscious. When a believer dies, he immediately finds himself in paradise, enjoying the presence of the Lord. And so when scripture refers to dead believers as being asleep, it's not teaching soul sleep. So what is meant? Well, scripture refers to dead believers as asleep in reference to their bodies, not in reference to their souls. When we die, our bodies rest. Our bodies just lie there as though asleep. Just as someone who is resting is obviously not working and not active, so it is that someone who dies rests from their earthly labors. They are no longer active here on earth. And there's certainly a natural correspondence between death and sleep. Someone who is sleeping looks and acts like he's dead. We all know this, but it still doesn't answer the question why Scripture chooses to speak of death in terms of sleep. And the deeper reason has to do with our comfort. God's word refers to believers who have died as fallen asleep because one day our bodies will be raised from the grave so that just as a person sleeps and then wakes up, so it is that the bodies of believers who now lie in the grave will one day be awakened unto life. And furthermore, sleep is God's way of helping us to understand that death is no longer our enemy, for there's a huge difference between sleep and death. They may look similar, but they're very different. Death means destruction. Death means suffering the curse of God's law. And it's significant that in Scripture, Jesus' death is never described as sleeping. This is because Jesus truly died under the curse of God. His death was all about suffering the wrath of God on behalf of his people. And scripture doesn't try to minimize the horror of Christ's death, but it offers us as believers comfort in our deaths. Because Jesus took the sting of our death upon himself, we can face our deaths with hope and joy. Because of what Jesus did for us, our souls immediately go to heaven and the death of our bodies is no more horrible than sleep. It's true, yes, death separates body and soul. Because of this separation, our bodies go into the grave. But you and I should think of the bodies of dead believers as being only in a state of rest. 
They're, they're, they're asleep from which one day they will be awakened. There's nothing malignant. There's nothing terrifying about sleep. And so you and I should not fear what will become of the bodies of our deceased brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, don't forget, they are asleep only in terms of their earthly existence, in terms of their earthly bodies. Their souls are with the Lord. And so the first teaching of these verses is that believers who die, they're not lost. They're only asleep. Part of what this means is that those who are asleep will one day be awakened. And so this leads us naturally into Paul's instruction about the resurrection and so the second doctrine that I would point out from these verses is that departed saints will not be left out of the resurrection and the glories of Christ's return. The resurrection and the Lord's return are treated together in these verses because the resurrection will take place at the Lord's return. It will be, in fact, one of the key events of that day. One of the Lord's purposes in returning will be to complete the salvation of his people. And uh, you need to understand clearly what I mean by complete. He's completed our salvation in the sense of having earned our salvation once and for all through his perfect obedience and, and, uh, and death on the cross. He, he has, in that sense, completely satisfied the justice of God. He has earned our salvation. Um, and yet we have not yet experienced that salvation in its fullness. Part of our salvation for which we must wait is the resurrection of our bodies. And so when the Lord returns to gather his people and to complete our salvation, one of the glories revealed in that day will be the raising of bodies from the grave. And Paul wants it to be perfectly clear that those who now sleep in Jesus will share all of the glories of that day. Just as surely as the Lord died and rose again, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. When Jesus returns, it will not be a return simply to bless those who remain alive. Paul is, is directly confronting the notion that those who have died before Christ's return will be disadvantaged in some way. To the contrary, Paul says that when Jesus returns, those who have fallen asleep in him will be with him. Now you may be wondering, well, how can the dead, whose bodies are decaying on this earth, be with Jesus when he returns. Well, they will be with him in their souls. While their bodies rest in their graves, in their souls, they have been with Jesus in heaven. And what Paul is now saying is that when Jesus comes from heaven, the souls of departed saints will accompany him. Well, why? So that they can be reunited with their bodies. In fact, those who have died will be the first to experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Notice verses 15 and 16. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. One of the main purposes of the Lord's coming is to resurrect the bodies of the dead. And, of course, believer and unbeliever alike, the bodies will be raised. But Paul here is focusing particularly upon the raising of believers. It's only believers who are described as being asleep in death. And uh, he's coming here to resurrect, as Paul describes it, the bodies of dead believers. 
The Lord's coming will be with great majesty, with victory, with power, to announce this victory of his people over the grave, which is the significance of his coming with a cry of command, or maybe your translation says uh, coming with a shout, and uh, also with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. There's also reference to his coming on the clouds, which tells us something as well of the nature of his coming that we will get to in a moment. But notice that, um, I guess there's, there is a difference of opinion about whether verse 16 is referring to three different sounds or three different ways of describing what is one triumphant noise, but I tend to think there are three different sounds here in view. This cry of command, this, this shout mentioned in verse 16 is really a shouted command. It's a word that in the Greek can refer to an officer shouting to his troops or a hunter shouting to his dogs, a charioteer to his horses or a shipmaster to his rowers. This is a loud, authoritative cry. This is the cry of Jesus Christ ordering the dead to rise. John 5 verse 28 says, for the hour is coming which, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. And we have the voice of an archangel, which implies that the army hosts of heaven will be with Jesus at his return. Other scripture passages confirm that angels will be present with Jesus at his return. And the reference here is probably to the voice of one particular archangel as a messenger and representative of Christ, adding his voice to this call which wakes the dead. The trumpet call is very fitting in connection with Christ's return. In the Old Testament, it was a trumpet blast that announced the coming of God to meet his people, for instance, when he descended upon Mount Sinai. The call of the trumpet was used as a signal in battle and thus would appropriately signal that Christ has come to to defeat the last enemy, which is death. Also, religious feasts and festivities, including Jubilee, were announced by a call of the trumpet. And, of course, these celebrations, these feasts, were were, um, a time of, uh, of celebrating the victories and blessings of the Messiah that he would bring. And at the heart of these blessings is the resurrection 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 51, tells us that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And so the trumpet is clearly an announcement of Christ's coming to resurrect the dead. Scripture also mentions clouds, the Lord coming on the clouds, which are symbolic of the Lord coming in majesty for the punishment of his enemies and the salvation of his church. And so in some here, Paul describes a scene of our Lord coming with great power and glory to resurrect the dead. And what Paul wants to emphasize is that it is those who have died who will first experience the resurrection power of Christ. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. It's almost like those who have already died will actually have the advantage. For those who are alive will have to wait their turn. But eventually, after the bodies of the dead are raised and and, and united with their souls, Christ will turn to the salvation of those who are alive. And you might be thinking, well, what, what will need to happen to those who are alive at the Lord's return? Well, those who are alive will also need to be given new bodies. Scripture is clear that our current bodies 
these earthly bodies we have of flesh and blood are not fit for life in heaven. All of God's people will need new bodies. For those who have died, their old bodies were destroyed in the grave in order to be raised anew. But for those who are alive at Christ's coming, the Lord will in a mere moment destroy their corruptible bodies and transform them into new spiritual bodies. Thus both the dead and the living, those who are believers, whether dead or living, will be made ready to be received into heaven. This leads us right into the next comforting truth, the third truth to point out this evening, which is that we will one day be reunited with our brothers and sisters in Christ who died before us. Whether alive or asleep at Christ's coming, all of us will receive a new resurrection body. And once that has taken place, we as one big group all together will be met by the Lord and taken to live with him forever. So the teaching of verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And verse 18 summarizes what is the intended significance of all of this instruction about the end times. Therefore, comfort, or maybe your translation says encourage, comfort, encourage one another with these words. Praise God, we do not have to grieve as the world does over death. Loved ones who have died knowing Christ as their Lord and Savior are safe. They are now with Christ. Not in their bodies, no, but they are with Christ. They are with Christ in their souls. Yes, they are gone from us. And we grieve because their bodies are asleep, because their existence here on earth is done. But in their bodies, they are merely asleep. And one day, that believer you once knew here on earth will have his body restored. Body and soul will be reunited. Even if you end up being one of those who is alive when the Lord returns, you will not be at an advantage, for all of us will be given new bodies. All of us will have to exchange this old body and existence for a new one. And what these truths do is they confirm to us how the Lord Jesus has transformed death for us as his people. Because of Christ's saving work, think of it, death is nothing to fear. Death is but the entrance into glory. Death is but a way to shed this old body in order that it may be created anew. Whether we lose this old body now or at the Lord's return, it really makes no difference. This is because for you as a believer in Christ, the curse of death is gone. So we are being confronted here with the truth that Christ took all of the curse of his people as he died on the cross. When he died, he died for all of those who trust in him. And by faith, you and I are united to Christ in such a way that what he has done applies to us. And this is true not only of his atoning death on the cross, but he also rose from the dead on your behalf. His resurrection assures you of yours. So take heart, be of good cheer. Your Savior has overcome sin. He's overcome the curse of sin. At his return, he will defeat the last enemy, which is death. And of course, we have to recognize that this is only for those who trust in him. This, this is only for those who trust in him alone for the forgiveness of sins. For apart from Christ, apart from trust in him, apart from receiving his salvation, death means sorrow. It means sorrow without hope. 
For the unbeliever, Christ's return will be about judgment. It will be about death. It will be about the experience of separation from God for all eternity. It will be about experiencing the curse of God that comes upon all those who die in their sins. It's about experiencing the wrath of God. But with faith in Christ, you as a believer can expect to experience nothing but good things, whether at death or at the Lord's return. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that in Christ we have hope, even in the face of death. We thank you, Father, that death is not the end. We thank you that there is life for the soul of those who die in Christ. There is also the resurrection of our bodies. Whether we are alive at our Savior's return, Lord, we know that we need new bodies. We thank you that in Christ we will receive those. And so, Father, so many encouraging, comforting truths that you have brought to us this evening. We thank you, Father, that you have shown us um, what death is like, what, what the afterlife is like. And we can recognize that what you have given us is so much different than the thinking of the world. Um, and and, and uh, you've given us a future of hope that the world doesn't have. Lord, we thank you. We know that this all is based upon Christ, his death, his resurrection in our place. We pray that each one of us would know um, in our own hearts that we are trusting in Christ alone uh, to uh, make us uh, worthy of these things at the, at the point of death. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would uh, have full assurance that because of what Christ has done, death is but the entrance to glory, that death is but the entrance into a life of greater things. So, Lord, give us hope and give us comfort. We pray for those who have lost loved ones. We pray for those who are uh, seeing that they may lose loved ones soon. May these truths become uh, very precious and, uh, and a source of great comfort. We pray these things in Jesus' name.